2: Welcome back to Forum, I'm Alexis Madrigal. On Friday, the Dixie Fire, which has ravaged 490,000 acres in Northern California and leveled the town of Greenfield, became the second largest fire in state history. Of the 10 biggest fires in recorded California history, seven have taken place in the last three years. On Thursday, Governor Gavin Newsom declared a state of emergency in Siskiyou, Nevada, and Placer counties, and the fire remains less than 25% contained. So for the rest of the show, we're going to check in on the latest with the Dixie Fire, answering your questions about how the state is responding and what lies ahead. Joining us first is Scott Rodd, reporter with Capital Public Radio. Welcome to the show, Scott. Thanks for having me on. So help us understand the sort of um, basics of what happened. I mean, this fire started burning July 14th. Do we know how it got started?
3: Uh, we don't know for sure. However, um, PG&E has indicated that their equipment may have been involved and the state uh, state investigators are looking at that. Um, so but th- that's all the information we have right now. Investigations like this typically take a little
2: while to play out. Got it. And, you know, it it burned for a while and it was it was a growing fire, but it was a, a relatively small fire by at least recent standards. Um, Then it seemed like last week, some things really began to change with the conditions around the fire. Can you kind of lead us through the last week and what's happened?
3: Yeah, we are seeing increases um, over the course of, you know, 12 hour spans, 24 hour spans of 50,000 70,000 I think at one point over a 24 hour span it increased by 100,000 acres and in a normal year I guess whatever that is you know nowadays um you know in a normal fire year you typically think of a fire that's 50 or 70,000 acres as a big fire um and this fire was growing by that amount over the course of 12 or 24 hours so uh, you know we were just seeing extreme fire conditions you know right now in general fuel moisture levels are, you know, historically low. Uh, So that means just this, you know, vegetation out there is prime for burning, for catching fire and for advancing fire very quickly. Um, We we also just have heat uh, that's blanketing the state. We have a severe drought across much of the state. And we have winds that are picking up, which really is the thing that can kickstart a fire that may start small but uh, can really cause it to spread rapidly and can cause containment to falter um, and spot fires to jump over any containment lines that may be forming. Mm. Um, so that's what we really saw last week when it
2: when it really blew up. Because we saw containment actually go down from 35% into the low 20s, right?
3: That's right. And CAL FIRE said that it had to do with updated mapping, but of course also they're facing just extreme conditions out there. Yeah.
2: I want to add Meg Upton to the conversation. She's a resident of Greenville, California and a reporter for Feather Publishing and Plumas County News. Welcome to the show, Meg. Thank you. So, Greenville was hit very hard by the fire. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about the town, you know, pre-fire? What what kind of town was it?
4: Um <laughs> It's kind of, it's always to me Greenville. I've been there nineteen years. is a town that you hope to find someday. It's uh, for California. It's it's affordable, which is crazy because it's hard to find anything in California that's affordable. So you have lower income, middle income people who live in this majestic valley that you know, kind of a, a nice secret you know, that you don't want to get out before, you know, millionaires come and buy it up and and then no one can live there anymore. Um, It it had not faced that sort of gentrification. Um, It's the native land to the uh, mountain Maidu, which there are uh, many Maidu families still living in the area. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of retirees in the area. Um, And it's just, it was a wonderful place. I raised my two kids there. And um, I'm from Los Angeles originally. And, um, you know, all my friends would, would visit and just find it incredible because here their kids were learning about like nature and books and my kids could identify plants and, and you know, saw all the things that there's never got to see in larger areas. And it was yeah. just, a, um, I don't want to say was so much because uh, on social media these days, there's definitely a lot of people who's... Um, houses have still survived and a lot of other people planning to rebuild and stay um so i don't want to use past tense but um obviously it's going to be
2: changed forever one way or another yeah
4: right and our downtown will never be the same all those old wood buildings my office was in the oldest building in downtown greenville which was 1860. so
2: How did you find out that the fire had hit the downtown and destroyed many, many structures?
4: Well, I think what happened is it really caught us by surprise. Um, I I left Greenville on July 15th to take my kid to uh, the airport to a summer camp and to help move the other kids. So we didn't leave for evacuation. We left like we were going to be back in a week. And I got a call from my mother who lives on Pioneer Road, whose house is still there right now. Um, And she said, you know, watch the news for me. I called my editor and and people started to be evacuated and um, they were evacuated for 11 days and that's a long evacuation for anyone. Um, And then they were allowed back in. And I think that allowed back in is what really uh, threw people because you know my mother was back for four hours and two hours into her being back i'm on the phone with her trying to get her out of there again and to safety um and especially a lot of the older people once they got back they didn't want to leave again they you know they their cats were back in the house and they're you know they were like well we just got back we we can't leave again and just the psychological uh, trauma of that day of wow. trying you know from Southern California and i'm I'm trying to get people to my mom's house to gather up her cats throw her in a car whether she's uh, arguing with them or not and getting her out of there it was an incredibly horrific day for um, that emotionally and wow. she's she's safe in Sierraville she's safe okay
2: where, where are people fanning out to find housing that you've heard from uh, in Greenville?
4: Um, well, I, I feel so much for my ex-husband and his girlfriend. Um, she lives in Chester and he lives in Crescent Mills. So he went to Chester and then the Chester got evacuated and they went to Westwood. Then Westwood got evacuated. Then they went to Susanville and now they're in alturas oh, <laughs> and i've heard from um in southern california i saw that there was about five or six neighbors i know who were staying with relatives down there i'm currently in a hotel in reno <laughs> with oh. my uh, family yeah. um, so everywhere chico reno anywhere that's not on fire within yeah. 100 miles there's somebody from our town
2: We're talking about the fires in Northern California, especially the Large Dixie Fire with Meg Upton and Scott Rod, a reporter with Capital Public Radio. We'll be back with more Forum after the break. Coming up in our next hour with Mina Kim, nearly 63% of Californians are now vaccinated against COVID-19, far higher than the national rate. But in many parts of the state, health officials are struggling with how to convince those who are reluctant. We'll look at efforts in Fresno County, where about 44% of residents are fully vaccinated, We'll talk with vaccine-hesitant people there about what has prevented them from getting a shot, and we'll discuss what we're learning about the best ways to address those concerns. To listen to past shows and subscribe to our podcast, visit kqed.org slash forum. And for the latest updates on our programs and guests, find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We're at KQED Forum. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the fires in Northern California, especially the Dixie Fire, with Scott Rodd, a reporter at Capital Public Radio, Meg Upton, a resident of Greenville, California, and a reporter with Feather Publishing, Plumas County News. And we'd like to add Zeke Lunder, the founder of Deer Creek Resources and the manager of the Lookout website, to the conversation. Welcome, Zeke. Hello. Good morning. We also want to hear from you. What are your questions about these fires? Have you or a loved one had to evacuate during a recent fire? And how should California be responding to wildfire season? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Zeke, I wanted to ask you about this region where The Dixie Fire has broken out. Over the years, it seems like whether it was the Camp Fire or or many others in the years before that, this area's been hit time and time again. Um, What is it about this area that makes it so fire prone?
5: Well, the Feather River Canyon, um, some of you probably traveled it um, on Highway 70. Um, You know, it's one of the most um, kind of rugged canyons in the Northern Sierra, really inaccessible land. And there's history there you know, for thousands of years of, of lightning fires um, that grow large. And then in, um, in recent times, we've had a lot of man-made fires, um, either started by the railroad or by utility or um, other uh, you know, human-caused fires that just once they get started in the canyon, it's really hard for
2: us to get in there and put them out. Because it's um, difficult to, to actually firefight them or because there's so much fuel there? Uh, kind of both, but especially the
5: firefighting, uh, the is really steep and there's a lot of rocks and it's kind of notorious among firefighters for, um, rolling rocks. Mm. So you get a fire and it burns all the brush and kind of litter away that holds rocks in place. And they come down and they, you know, smash firefighters. Yeah. And so we've learned over time that it's really dangerous for us to engage, uh, kind of mid-slope in the Canyon. And so it's kind of, um, you know, once a fire gets to be, you know, 50 acres or, you know, much larger than that. Um, there's there's kind of limits to what we can do with helicopters and air tankers on those steep canyon slopes. And so we've just had a lot of fires there that have often burned for, you know, weeks or months.
2: Yeah. You know, one of my questions that keeps coming up for me, these areas that have been burned, you know, multiple times, um, it, it seems like there should be some protection, right? Some clearing out of the fuel from one, one year to the next if there's a fire on that land. Uh, But it seems like this area keeps going uh, time and again.
5: Yeah, one thing that's interesting about that is that even though we've had a lot of fires in some of these places, trees that survived previous fires oftentimes survive the next one. So, Mm. you know, we had the um, Story Fire in 2000 that burned a large area, um, kind of like the initial probably week of the Dixie Fire. A lot of that burned in the Story Burn. And then we had the chips fire 10 years later, 12 years later, that burned a lot of the story burn. And so a lot of the trees that survived story, you know, the fire burned all the lower branches and it killed a lot of the small trees. And the larger trees that survived then, they survived the chips fire. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those trees actually survived the Dixie fire too.
2: Hmm.
5: So these areas where we have had many burns over and over, oftentimes, even though they have a lot less trees on them, a lot of the trees tend to survive the next fire. The problem, the real problem with the Dixie fire is that it got up and out of the canyon and where we were able to hold it during the Chips fire in 2012, it took off and burned roadless areas and it burned just a ton of area that hasn't burned for a hundred years. So we're seeing this incredible fire intensity and severity in areas that haven't had fires. And one of the reasons for that is just that these areas with better access, we've put out all the fires.
2: Mm -hmm. Let's bring in Dave from Humboldt County into the conversation. Welcome to the show, Dave.
0: Hi, thanks for the show. Thank you. Um, I've been involved in wildland fire since 1981, um, most recently as a wildfire mitigation specialist. And I'm here today to uh, help dispel some misconceptions about how people can help themselves. Um, the biggest single missing link in the equation for wildfire safety is hardening homes and other buildings to resist ignition from windborne embers, which is the uh, far and away, most likely way that they're going to ignite in a wildfire situation. Uh, if you do adequate defensible space, which is managing the fuels around the home, then that will preclude a wall of flame arriving at the front door. but the windborne embers can um, retain their competence to ignite uh, material in uh, extreme conditions for up to two miles, so the defensible space will not protect against that and um, it the concept of hardening homes is only beginning to gain some traction and so I'm just here today to help uh, publicize that a mm-hmm. little bit for the listeners not only that but um, it gives firefighters, a much better chance of uh, protecting your home. And in some instances, there have been very intense fires that swept across hardened buildings without igniting them. Yeah,
2: Zeke Lundert, do you want to talk a little bit about home hardening? Not
5: really. Um, I don't feel like the Dixie Fire, isn't, the story's uh... not about wooey as much as it's about hundreds of thousands of acres of high severity timber fire he's dave's right yeah. um, home hardening is important but i don't think that the big impacts of this fire um you know my brother's got a place in greenville my parents live in westwood obviously yeah. the impacts to communities are real yeah. and horrible but the watershed impacts you know the fact that we've burned up um got to be at least i can't give you the percentage but a huge percentage of the watershed for the entire state. I think that's what we need to talk about right now. Mm-hmm.
2: And what effect will that have uh, as time goes on? Well, there's um, there's a lot of,
5: well, just to just to give a sense of scale, um, I put some maps up on my Twitter feed that showed um, the recent two largest fires in the watershed. You know, the Bear Fire last year burned about 400,000 acres. I think this has burned um 500,000 so we're talking about close to a million acres and some of these fires this fire the Dixie fire in particular is burned really hot at higher elevations in some areas up you know around 7,000 feet that's really our snow belt and so once you get rid of all the shade snow melts faster and especially when we're talking about you know a huge proportion of the watershed now having no shade at the higher elevations when the snow melts faster we we rely on you know, 70% of the water in the state water project and the water for something like 25 million people comes from the Feather River. And during times of drought, especially we need water late in the season and irrigators need water late in the season. And so if the snow melts earlier in the year um, and the reservoirs are full, say um, we just don't get that water coming down in the fall when we need it. So that's, that's one of those, this really big picture impacts.
2: Yeah. Scott Rod, um, is there, Uh, Are there more things the state could and should be doing right now um, with fire management, or do we just sort of have to deal with this fire season as it's about to hit us or is hitting
3: Uh, us? far as this fire season goes, I mean, we're not, we can't go out and start doing thinning and prescribed burns and and expect that it's going to have an impact for this season. I mean, what's going to happen this season is going to happen this season. Um, But fire ecologists, fire scientists say that um, fuel management is absolutely, um, you know, should be a a big part of the state and the federal government's preparation uh, for you know preventing and also mitigating the spread of these fires. Um, you know, the the state and the federal government's mitigation work has increased over time, but it still remains well below what experts say it needs to be at. I mean, experts say that you know, a good target would be around a million acres of treatments a year. That could be prescribed burns, mechanical thinning, um, and so forth. Uh, you know, the state and the federal government remain well short of that. They have a target of trying to reach that million acre goal per year by 2025, but they still, it's a long way to go. They really have to ramp up that work. And frankly, when you have a fire season like this, where you have the folks that are responsible for the prevention work, AKA, you know, firefighters, when they're pulled off that work so early in the season to go fight the fires, getting that prevention work done is really challenging.
2: Yeah. Mike, mm-hmm. given what you're hearing and what you've heard and experienced with this fire going through Greenville, are you, are you changing the way you think about living there? Are, are you gonna leave?
4: um well i I kind of wanted to respond to a couple of things I think that sure. Dave said about the house hardening sort of situation. My mother's uh property, which um I have a tiny house on her property, our property burned. We were getting ready to put the tiny house over there and I'm glad we uh were way late, so we still have some place to live up there um But we had been struggling. Uh, My mom's property abuts uh, National Forest and Caltrans. And Caltrans and the forest told us uh, there were dead trees standing, not on my mom's property. Um, And we'd been calling about them for two years. It took two years to get the dead tree standing down and so we might be doing as much property owner wise as possible for our own properties but when we abut other places that are not responding to us in a timely manner um you know it's 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 unfair to put it all on the property owner for um mm-hmm. what they can do for their property uh because that is that is not the reality on the ground um i <laughs> You know, a lot of people I know, a a really good friend of mine found out that her house is gone and that house was going to, she was about to sell it. She had fixed it up to send her kids to college. Um, And of course, no one's going to want to buy it now. So there's many of us who are invested in rebuilding um, Greenville because uh, we have no other recourse. Um, We either walk away with nothing um, or we rebuild and i i'm what i'm hearing in the last couple days is people much rather rebuild i mean otherwise we become displaced californians and there's kind of a joke that a lot of us talk about of once you know if you if you had a property i know people had property in san jose my mother's house uh, she moved from uh, monterey county 20 years ago and we say once you once you sell your place in coastal California and moved to the mountains, you've made a decision and you'll mm. never be able to live in anywhere else in California, again, because you won't be able to afford the prices. Mm. So we have a good deal of our population. Exactly.
2: In that situation. In that situation. Yeah. Pete writes, the Dixie fire was caused by PG&E continuing to make decisions based on profit, not protection of Californians. I've read that instead of relying on Cal Fire, they tried to fly their own drone to put it out, costing valuable hours. The CPUC uh, has the power to shut them down and make them community and work controlled. How many more people in towns will have to be destroyed until they act? Scott Rudd, where, where are we on holding PG&E accountable in general?
3: Um, in general, it's tough to say. Uh, well, I, I should say it's tough for me to say it's that's not exactly my beat of expertise and it really is its own beat. The bankruptcy for P G E is very complex. I, I wish my uh, colleague Lily Jamali was on. So <laughs> who's over K D. She's been following this very very closely. But we love Lily. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Lily's great. Um I will say this though, um you know, we've seen um you know year after year um fire started by PG&E and despite their commitments to um you know b- b- building uh, or, or sort of improving improving their utility, improving their lines, improving their equipment. We're still seeing these fires started. So I can certainly say there's frustration out there. As far as accountability goes, um, I think a lot of people, especially, you know, who have been impacted by the Dixie fire, will be watching it closely to see what will the recourse be here. Um, you know, if they are found responsible for starting this fire, it's a lot of damage, not only to, you know, people's homes, but as Zeke was saying to, um, to the environment and to the
5: watershed. Yeah. Yeah, I've got something to add to that. Sure, Zeke, go ahead. Um, I think that blaming PG&E for the fire, you know, it's obviously they, they have some, they're at fault, but PG&E didn't create the forest conditions that are causing these great fires to happen. And so if PG&E doesn't start this fire, but the railroad starts the fire or a car wreck starts the fire, or someone's trailer dragging a chain starts the fire, we still have a problem with fuels and a really flammable environment that's out of balance um, and a relationship with fire that's broken. Yeah. And so while well, we should have a safe grid, now one, there's a the question of like, well, is that possible? Are we willing to give up hydropower as one of our main energy sources? Um, because the campfire and this fire, they're both started by power lines that are there in the worst possible place to build a power line in the West, because we need to get electricity out of power plants in the bottoms of our wild canyons. And so if you put this fire, the tab for this fire and the tab for the campfire on um, the accounting sheet for PG&E's hydropower, the question I have is, does that even pencil out for PG&E is hydropower really a green energy?
2: Mm. Mm. So Zeke, what what needs to happen then? I mean, you've been watching this for a long time and it obviously sounds like it's something that's near and dear to your to your heart as well. Um, if you were, if you could be fire czar for California, what are you doing? Well, I think home
5: hardening and community protection is really important, not just to save the people's homes, but so we can let fires burn in the back country. You know, there's all these places that we um, need to have fire. We have fires that are started under conditions that aren't extreme and we put them out. And the biggest reason we put them out is because no one wants to let a fire burn all fall and then have it blow up and become the next campfire or the next bear fire. But if we have communities that are um, defensible from fire, where fire can burn around the community and not burn up the community, we could actually let fire burn on the landscape. And I think as long as we deny fire its place on the landscape, we'll never get ahead of it. It's like we've got this war that we've been waging on fire for a century and we've lost. Like we can no longer keep up with it. And the thing is that fire already had kind of this relentless hand that it could play but now it's got this ally of climate change and together fire and climate change are this unstoppable force and we need to make peace with that and we um there's so many obstacles to implementing prescribed fire there's so many obstacles to implementing managed fire but fire doesn't care about any of that Um, it doesn't care what we think and um we have to kind of renegotiate our relationship with fire and we, we just can't keep it off the land. I mean, obviously when we try to keep it off the land, we keep the good fire off the land. Cause those are the only fires that we can put out. And we're stuck with these bad fires that are leaving us with really, um, I mean, I, I looked at some satellite imagery last night and the proportion of the fire around Chester. Um, you know, I grew up in Westwood and I'm looking at this landscape that, um, in my lifetime, we will never have large trees on it over a huge proportion of the landscape I grew up in. Mm. And that is a consequence of trying to keep every fire out of there for 100 years. Yeah.
2: Meg, um, before we go, can you just tell us one just great thing about Greenville, California, where you, where you lived for so long? Just uh, it's, it's been kind of a doom-ridden show today, but we only have about a minute left to go.
4: Um, well, that would just be the people, um, the most interesting people have found their way to Greenville and made it their home. Um, uh, there's also generations of people there, uh, who their family, they, they raised their family there. They go away. They come back. It is definitely a tight knit community. Yeah. Everyone knows everyone. And we're all heartbroken at the same time for everyone who's lost their house.
2: Well, our best to the people of Greenville. We've been talking about the fires in Northern California, especially the Dixie Fire with Meg Upton, a resident of Greenville, California. Scott Rodd, a reporter at Capital Public Radio and Zeke Lunder, founder of Deer Creek Resources and manager of the Lookout website. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break with Mina Kim.